Welcome to the Grin Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here's your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, my friends, welcome back for the last episode of the vascular reaction pattern, as we'll be discussing vascular tumors and malformations. This is a big, big list of lesions that fit this bill, but we'll discuss the common benign vascular lesions in kids and adults, and then we're going to finish with the malignant vascular proliferations. Since most of this discussion revolves around pediatrics, we'll be hanging out with our favorite pediatric dermatologist, Dr. Binky, today. Hey guys, what's up? It's Dr. Binky. Today we're diving into a really difficult subject that a lot of people don't like, but we see it all the time, so you better listen up. Before we talk vascular tumors and malformations, I want to try something new with a pre- and post-episode quiz. After that, we'll review our vascular reaction pattern one last time with a special twist. But first, I must mention our disclaimer that this episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. So here's the pre-quiz question number one. What is the difference between a vascular tumor and a vascular malformation? And what is one example of each? Question number two. How do we categorize hemangiomas and how do you counsel parents on what to expect with them? Question number three. What does FACES syndrome, spelled P-H-A-C-E-S, FACES syndrome stand for? Answers for these questions to come later in the episode. Now let's review the vascular reaction pattern one last time, which, remember, refers to red lesions produced by the cutaneous vasculature that may or may not be blanchable. We've broken these vascular disorders into eight groups or individual entities. Can you name them? As I've recorded the last several episodes, I want to tweak the order of these subgroups just a bit in a way that I think is easier to memorize. So for the vascular disorders, we have number one, urticaria, number two, erythema multiforme and its two forms, EM minor and EM major, then number three, the toxic erythema group, which has three subclasses, drug, bug, and toxin, which refers to the drug eruptions like SJS, bug for viral exanthems, or the toxin-mediated eruptions including staph scalded skin syndrome, toxic shock syndrome, scarlet fever, and Kawasaki disease. Then the fourth vascular group are the four figurate erythemas, which includes erythema annularis centrifugum, erythema gyratum repens, erythema migrans, and erythema marginatum. Then back to our regular order with five being the many forms of vasculitis, six vasculopathy, seven retiform purpura, and eight vascular growths including neoplasms and vascular malformations that we'll discuss today. Okay guys, let's start with the basics. Tell me the difference between a vascular tumor and a vascular malformation and give me an example of each one.
Vascular tumors represent a proliferation of normal appearing cells or structures, whereas vascular malformations involve an error in the development of blood vessels. Again, vascular tumors represent a proliferation of normal appearing cells or structures, whereas vascular malformations involve an error in the development of blood vessels. When we hear the term tumor, we think of a growth, but also keep in mind that the term tumor can be applied to either benign or malignant growths. Examples of vascular tumors include a variety of hemangiomas or, say, a pyogenic granuloma. Then there's vascular malformations, which again are errors in the formation of vascular structures. Some vascular malformations include capillary malformations, aka port wine stains, along with angiokeratomas and lymphangiomas. A key feature of vascular malformations is that, unlike the vascular tumors such as hemangiomas, the vascular malformations tend to be present at birth and they persist for a patient's lifetime. In today's episode, we'll start out with the common pediatric vascular lesions, do a quick vignette, and then discuss the common and serious vascular lesions that we must know for our adult patients. Hello, Dr. Binky. Binky? All right, guys, let's do some bread and butter Pete'sterm. What do you think the most common vascular growth that I see in kids is? This would be hemangiomas. Older names for angiomas include capillary, strawberry, or cavernous hemangiomas. We currently divide hemangiomas in a baby into two types, one, congenital, or two, infantile hemangiomas. Congenital hemangiomas are present at birth, whereas infantile hemangiomas develop after birth, usually within the first few weeks of life. The congenital hemangiomas are further broken down into rapidly involuting congenital hemangiomas, aka rich, or non-involuting congenital hemangiomas, aka niche. So again, remember hemangiomas in a baby are divided into two types, one being congenital hemangiomas that babies are born with, which can be rapidly involuting, aka rich, or non-involuting, aka niche. Then there's number two, infantile hemangiomas, which develop after birth in the first months of life. Since infantile hemangiomas are extremely common in effect between 2-12% to of infants, let's shed a little bit more light on the subject. As mentioned, infantile hemangiomas start after birth, most commonly around 2-3 to weeks of life. Up to half of infantile hemangiomas start with a precursor lesion such as a red patch or telangiectasias, which looks just like port wine stains. So, remember that sometimes we have to give these red patches some time in order to see if they become hemangiomas or persist as port wine stains. Regardless, once a true infantile hemangioma starts to develop, they grow rapidly during the first 5 months of life, and then growth usually plateaus between 9-12 to 12 months of life. After that, these infantile hemangiomas slowly involute. Lesions are typically superficial and have a bright red color, but they can have deeper components that take on a blue hue. Or, they can be a mix of superficial and deep components in around 25% of cases. Okay guys, so the two most common questions a mom is going to have for you about her baby's hemangioma is how did they get it, so what are the risk factors for this? And they're also going to ask you how long this spot's going to take to go away. So what do you tell them? (laughs) 
It is classically taught that infantile hemangiomas resolve at a rate of around 10% per year, with 50% of lesions gone by age 5, 70% by age 7, 90% by 9 years old. Some recent literature shows a median age of involution at 3 years old and lesions being more persistent if they're still around after 4 years of age. Either way, we can expect infantile hemangiomas to eventually go away. Risk factors for infantile hemangiomas include female sex, premature birth, advanced maternal age, and placental abnormalities such as placenta previa and preeclampsia. Again, risk factors for infantile hemangiomas include female sex, premature birth, advanced maternal age, and placental abnormalities such as placenta previa and preeclampsia. So we have lots of great treatments for hemangiomas now with topical timolol and oral propranolol, but that could be a whole lecture in itself. Give me five scenarios when a hemangioma needs to be treated more aggressively or we need to perform farther workup. Hemangiomas are especially problematic if they, one, ulcerate, which requires more aggressive treatment, two, threaten function by involving the periocular area, the nose, ears, lips, or the genitals, three, if they are extensive and located in the beard area, since these lesions have a 60% risk of airway involvement, four, if they're large and segmental in a V1 nerve distribution on the face, which has a higher risk of facies syndrome, and lastly, number five, if the hemangiomas are large and segmental in the lumbosacral area, which has a higher risk of lumbar sacral syndrome. So again, hemangiomas require more aggressive treatment and or need more workup if number one, they ulcerate, which requires more aggressive treatment, number two, they threaten function by involving the periocular area, nose, ears, lips, or genitals, three, are extensive and located in the beard area since these lesions have a 60% risk of airway involvement, four, are large and segmental in a V1 nerve distribution on the face, which has a higher risk of facies syndrome, and lastly, number five are large and segmental in the lumbosacral area, which has a higher risk of lumbar sacral syndrome. Ugh, lumbar sacral syndrome, another worthless acronym. Actually, that's one of the more important acronyms we use, but we need to keep moving. Let me give you a scenario. The cutest pumpkin baby in the whole world comes into your clinic but they have a really large unilateral hemangioma in the V1 area that extends into V2. You're worried about FACES, the important acronym. What does it stand for and who do you want to call? And it can't be your mommy. So here's another answer to one of those pre-quiz questions. FACES is spelled P-H-A-C-E-S. We have P for posterior fossa malformations, such as Dandy Walker malformations, H for hemangiomas that are extensive on the face and often segmental, A for arterial anomalies such as aneurysms or anomalous branches of the internal carotids or cerebral arteries, C for cardiac anomalies such as coarctation of the aorta or atrial or ventricular septal defects. E is for eye abnormalities such as cataracts or retinal vascular changes, and S for sternal clefting or supraumbilical raphe. Again, for facies, remember P for posterior fossa malformations, H for hemangiomas, A, arterial anomalies, C for cardiac anomalies, 
E for eye changes, and S for sternal clefts or super umbilical raffae. If you have a concern for facies, what sort of workup or referrals would you want to do? If you're concerned about facy syndrome, you will need an MRI of the brain and an echocardiogram, so you want to help coordinate referrals to a pediatric neurologist and cardiologist, in addition to an ophthalmologist to rule out eye involvement. Remember, you cannot treat the hemangioma with propranolol unless you've ruled out the arterial and cardiac anomalies that we mentioned. Alright, so that's just scratching the surface for hemangiomas in general, but we gotta keep moving on. Since we're talking about vascular lesions in babies, I want to hop over to the vascular malformation side and quickly discuss port wine stains, aka nevus flamius. Port wine stains are congenital capillary malformations that are present at birth and start as a pink to red patch, which we know is flat. Unlike hemangiomas, which rapidly proliferate in their first few months, port wine stains do not rapidly proliferate and simply grow slowly with the patient. And unlike hemangiomas, which almost always resolve with or without residual changes, port wine stains do not self-resolve and actually can become thickened and bumpy later in life. Again, for port wine stains, aka nevus flamius, remember they're present at birth and will not self-resolve, but instead will grow with the patient and become papular or bumpy over time. Now, these port wine stains are different than the simple blanching nevus simplex, also known as the salmon patch, which is the most common vascular malformation affecting around a third of newborns. Nevus simplex presents as a pink, blanchable patch that is often located in the midline of the occiput more so than on the face or on the low back. Nevis simplex, again also called a salmon patch, a stork bite, or an angel kiss, is different from port wine stains in that number one, nevis simplex is lighter in color, number two, nevis simplex is poorly demarcated compared to the well demarcation of port wine stains, and lastly, number three, nevis simplex usually resolves if it is on the face, but it often persists when they're located on the occiput. Again, compared to port wine stains, nevus simplex is lighter in color, is less well demarcated, and usually resolves if it is on the face. Okay, so you have a brand new little baby in your office with a large port wine stain in a V1 distribution on the forehead. What syndrome are you worried about? Infants with an extensive port wine stain in a V1 nerve distribution on the forehead are at risk of Sturge-Weber syndrome. Do not mix up the V1 port wine stain association with Sturge-Weber and the V1 hemangioma association with facy syndrome. Again, do not mix up the association between V1 port wine stains with Sturge-Weber syndrome and the V1 hemangiomas association with facy syndrome. Keep in mind that neonates with a red patch in V1 need to be followed closely on a weekly basis, since like I mentioned earlier, early hemangiomas can look exactly like a port wine stain one day and then develop the classic elevation of hemangiomas within days to weeks. That's a great point, but let's say this spot is truly a port wine stain. What is the triad of Sturge-Weber syndrome and what specialist do you want to call to help you out?
Sturge-Weber syndrome has a triad of a port wine stain in a V1 distribution, leptomeningeal angiomatosis, which usually presents with seizures, and glaucoma. Again, Sturge-Weber syndrome has a triad of 1, a port wine stain in a V1 distribution, 2, leptomeningeal angiomatosis, which usually presents with seizures, and 3, glaucoma. Because of these findings, you will want similar consults to your facies patient with a pediatric neurologist, ophthalmologist, and radiologist, but you won't be needing the cardiologist in this case if you're certain that it is a port wine stain. Alright, so let's leave the world of babies jump back over to the vascular tumor side of things and discuss pyogenic granulomas, aka lobular capillary hemangiomas. Pyogenic granulomas present as a friable red papule that grows relatively quick over the course of weeks to a few months. They typically affect kids and young adults and tend to appear on the trauma-prone sites of the gingiva, lips, fingers, or face. Pyogenic granulomas are typically solitary, but there can be multiple lesions at times. So don't be like, uh, But Dr. Minky, there's multiple lesions. There's no way it could be a pyogenic granuloma. Some reported triggers for pyogenic granulomas include minor trauma in about one-third of cases, pregnancy, and a variety of medications, including systemic retinoids like isotretinoin or oral contraceptive pills. I also want to throw in a quick word of advice about pyogenic granulomas. Use the full name pyogenic granuloma and don't call it a PG because people often use PG to describe pyoderma gangrenosum, which is a completely different condition. Abbreviations are helpful in derm, but pyogenic granulomas and pyoderma gangrenosum are two conditions you'll probably want to use the full term for. Alright, so the next vascular growth that we'll discuss are angiokeratomas. These lesions thankfully have a descriptive name which describes their appearance, with angio referring to the superficial vascular nature and keratoma referring to their hyperkeratotic look. Can you name the five types of angiokeratomas? But if you can't, it's okay. I still might not be able to name them all. I'm going to mention these five variants of angiokeratomas one time, so listen closely. They include one, solitary or multiple angiokeratomas, which tend to favor the lower extremities. Two, angiokeratomas of Fordyce, which classically appear on the scrotum or vulva of older patients. Three, angiokeratoma corporis diffusum, which are often clustered in a bathing suit distribution and is associated with Fabry's disease. 4. Angiokeratoma circumscriptum, which appears in kids as coalescing angiokeratomas developing into a plaque. And lastly, number 5. Angiokeratoma of Mobelli, which occurs in teenagers most often on the hands and feet. Wait, so they're on my hands and my feet, and they're called angiokeratoma of my belly? They're about as far away from my belly as they can get. Hot damn. As for histology, again think about the term angiokeratomas and what it means. They start with angio, so we typically see dilated vessels in the papillary dermis, and then they end with keratomas, which are reflected by an acanthotic or thickened epidermis, along with hyperkeratosis. At first glance, angiokeratomas basically look like a bloody seborrheic keratosis on path, if that helps you remember these findings as well. 
So, those are a few of the vascular growths that, in and of themselves, are benign, but can have associated disorders. We've discussed hemangiomas, port wine stains, pyogenic granulomas, and angiokeratomas. Before we get into the malignant vascular growths, I'll mention some other benign vascular growths for completeness sake, which include tufted angiomas, glomus tumors, and angiolymphoid hyperplasia with eosinophilia. Here's some quick knowledge nuggets for each of these. Tufted angiomas classically present with pink-red plaques on the neck of kids less than one year of age and can be associated with the Kasebach merit phenomenon. So what is the Kasebach merit phenomenon? The Kasebach merit phenomenon, or KMP, refers to when platelets are trapped and destroyed in vascular lesions, leading to rapid lesion growth and coagulopathies. KMP is classically seen in tufted angiomas or kaposiform hemangioendotheliomas. So here's a mnemonic for the residents listening. I remember that tufted angiomas or kaposiform hemangioendotheliomas can cause the Kasebach merit phenomenon by remembering that these two lesions take away platelets, with take spelled T-A-K-H-E, and standing for tufted angioma and kaposiform hemangioendothelioma. But anywho, the other two benign vascular lesions that are worth mentioning are glomus tumors and angiolymphoid hyperplasia with eosinophilia. Glomus tumors classically present as a solitary, painful red papule on the finger that can cause significant nail dystrophy. Angiolymphoid hyperplasia with eosinophilia, aka ALHE, presents as grouped, pink to red-brown, dome-shaped papules that are classically by the ear, but they can be anywhere on the head and neck. They occur in young to middle-aged adults. For histology, the name angiolymphoid hyperplasia with eosinophilia is also descriptive. For angio, we see a proliferation of vessels in the dermis with large epithelioid or hobnail endothelial cells. Then, the lymphoid hyperplasia with eosinophilia in ALHE refers to the background of lymphocytic and eosinophilic inflammation. There are a variety of treatments for angiolymphoid hyperplasia with eosinophilia, and they include cryotherapy, intralesional kenalog, amiquimod, and most commonly, excisional surgery. Okay, you're doing a great job, but let's wrap this up and go to lunch together. Give me one low-grade malignant vascular growth and one high-grade malignant vascular growth. Low-grade tumors more closely represent normal tissue and grow much more slowly than the more aggressive high-grade tumors. For low-grade vascular tumors, think Kaposi sarcoma. For high-grade, think angiosarcoma. Let's start with Kaposi sarcoma. As I mentioned in the viral exanthem lecture, Kaposi sarcoma is caused by human herpes virus 8, aka HHV8, which is present in 100% of lesions. It's so common we actually stain for it to confirm the diagnosis on PATH. The four types of Kaposi sarcoma include classic KS, African endemic KS, iatrogenically immunocompromised KS, and AIDS-associated KS. Classic Kaposi sarcoma consists of slow enlargement of macules into vascular plaques and nodules on the legs of older men with a Mediterranean background. African endemic KS affects young African males in endemic areas and can be fatal. 
Iatrogenically immunocompromised KS is typically skin-limited and occurs in patients on immunosuppressive medications for organ transplants or autoimmune disease. Then lastly, there's AIDS-associated KS, which is obviously caused by HIV and, spoiler alert, it's what Tom Hanks had in the movie Philadelphia. There are also a variety of treatments for KS, which includes cryotherapy, the topical retinoid allitretinoin, and systemic chemo for progressive cases with internal organ involvement. And lastly, we have the high-grade malignant vascular growths. We're going to talk about one condition, and this is one that we all cannot miss. We're talking about angiosarcoma. The classic story for angiosarcoma is an elderly Caucasian male with a bruise-like patch, plaque, or nodule on their face or scalp that is progressively enlarging. It looks bad because it is bad, with a 5-year survival of less than 20%. So, if you have an elderly patient with what looks like a few bruises on the head and neck and they didn't have trauma, or a cellulitis that is not getting better, for God's sake, biopsy that thing and make sure it isn't angiosarcoma. Yeah, that's definitely one you don't want to miss. Seriously, last one. Bonus question. You have a patient with a history of a mastectomy and chronic lymphedema of their arm from the axillary lymph node dissection they had and they start to develop these little purpuric papules and plaques of that limb. What do you think they have? This vignette describes Stewart-Trevs syndrome, which describes the development of angiosarcoma in an area of chronic lymphedema. It usually takes at least four years of issues with lymphedema before the angiosarcoma develops in the affected area. And alright, so that is it for the vascular reaction pattern. You all just got through what I think is the most difficult reaction pattern. So we've gone through three out of the five reaction patterns thus far by covering papulosquamous, eczematous, and vascular disorders, and we've got two to go, dermal and vesicular bullus. We'll round things out today with an especially quick summary of our vascular lesions. Remember that they can be described as vascular malformations, which represents air and morphogenesis, versus vascular tumors, which are a proliferation in cells and vascular channels. The classic example of a vascular malformation is the port wine stain, while a vascular tumor would be a hemangioma. Remember that Sturge-Weber syndrome is the triad of a port wine stain in a V1 distribution along with ipsilateral leptomeningeal angiomatosis and glaucoma. Then there's facies syndrome, which has an extensive hemangioma in V1. Port wine stains are congenital, they take many years and decades to become elevated, and they don't self-resolve, whereas the hemangiomas can be congenital or start after birth in the infantile forms, and they're going to rapidly grow for a few months, plateau, and then slowly involute at around 10% per year. Then we talked about pyogenic granulomas, which can be induced by minor trauma, pregnancy, and medications like isotretinoin, OCPs, indinavir, and cetuximab. The other vascular growths we hit on include angiokeratomas, tufted angiomas, the painful glomus tumors, and angiolymphoid hyperplasia with eosinophilia. Then, remember our low-grade malignant vascular lesions are the HHV-8-induced Kaposi sarcoma, and the one that we can't miss in our elderly patients or patients with chronic lymphedema is angiosarcoma. You've been seeing some sick patients. Congratulations, you've worked until your body can no longer function. You've earned my respect. You can go home and get some rest. 
I'll take this last call. I'm sure it's another Seborrheic keratosis. Sweaty Palms Medical! Hello, hello! This is Dr. Archibald Grumpy Pants speaking. Oh, I thought only your residents answered the phone. I wasn't aware you knew how to operate a wireless telephone. This is a landline. Now what do you want? Well, I've got... Damn it, woman. It's been a rough week. You've taken the house, the car, the dog. I'm still taking this call because the alimony is relentless. What else do you want from me? Well, you're already miserable. Some fool has been snooping around the office. Oh, my God. Vincent said he was... Who in tarnation is this Vincent? He's my new boyfriend. He's twice the man you ever were, and he's a better father to our precious Malassezia than you ever were. She hasn't talked to me in three years. How is she doing? I'm surprised you haven't seen her around. What's that supposed to mean? I'm surprised you haven't seen her. She brings Chad the peanut butter and jellies and Capri Suns every day. Oh, never mind. Patch me over to somebody else to give me the consult. Alright, my friends. So that's another reaction pattern in the books. In the next season, which I'll do my best to get out to you all in the upcoming weeks to couple months, we're going to start with some bread and butter topics like hydradenitis superativa before we jump into the dermal disorders and find out how the rest of the drama unfolds. So, to round out this reaction pattern in today's episode, I want to play a little music for y'all. The music for the last 17 episodes of this podcast season has been mostly provided by Thomas and the Shakes, which features my good friend Thomas on guitar and vocals, my brother Garrett on drums, and some other special appearances by Mark on flute and saxophone, and even yours truly playing a little bass on some of the tracks. These guys didn't ask for anything to lend their music to the podcast, so what I ask from you is that if you enjoy the music, please find Thomas and the Shakes on Apple Music or Spotify and give their music a download and share it with a friend if you think that they'll enjoy it. I've included a link in the show notes for their music as well. So, let's get to the song. It's called Dreaming. I love this song for many reasons, not only the musicianship and Thomas's mother Peggy singing beautiful harmonies with her son, but I especially love the message. Life is full of expectations, and it's easy to get lost in our to-do lists, our careers, lofty goals, all of it. But don't miss the moments that really matter, the ones with family and friends that you hold near and dear. Because, to borrow Thomas's words, in the end, it's up to you what you do with your time. You won't be lying on your deathbed counting dollar signs. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and enjoy the music. If it's morning take all mine It don't mean nothing to me If it don't buy more time I might be better Of living on a dime I could still afford The moon and the sunshine
Alright, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. 
I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.